In this podcast, we come to one of the more challenging passages in the book and scripture. It serves as an introduction to the vision recorded in the next chapter. In this introduction, the curtains are pulled back on the spiritual warfare that goes on when Satan tries to interfere with the will of God. This reminds us of the truth we find throughout Scripture, that we too are involved in the midst of a spiritual battle. And like Daniel, the source of our strength is in our security in God, in His Word, and in prayer. Welcome to a series on the book of Daniel. This podcast is presented by Sefer Audio Productions in conjunction with Foothill Bible Church of Lincoln, California. These messages are presented as part of the Adult Sunday School program. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cragen. Now let's step into the classroom as the session is about to begin. According to the Canadian Army Journal, and I have no idea what issue, a conscientious study of history has revealed the following figures concerning man's evil warlike nature. Since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. During this period, there have been 14,531 wars, large and small, in which 3,640,000,000 people have been killed. The value of the destruction would pay for a golden belt around the world about 100 miles wide and 33 miles thick. Since 650 BC, there have been 1,656 arms races, only 16 of which have not ended in war. The remainder have terminated in the economic collapse of the countries concerned. Since the world cast out the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, by crucifying him almost 2,000 years ago, there has not been one year without a war. In fact, in the last 500 years, England has engaged in 78 wars, France 71 wars, the Netherlands 23, Spain 64, Australia 52, Germany 23, Italy 25, China 11, Denmark 20, Sweden 26, Poland 30, Russia 61, Turkey 43, and Japan 9. European nations alone engaged in 74 wars during the lifetime of the first generation born in the 20th century. Even America in its short history has engaged in 13 wars, and so man's inhumanity to man continues. Now, since I originally wrote this thing back in the 80s, we've been in a few more. When I taught it the last time, which was probably in the early 2000s, it appears that we were a month out from possibly getting into another one. I have no idea what that would have been at this point. And of course, now, <laughs> who knows? So, what is it? What's behind all of this? The fall. It's the fallen state of man. But, as we're going to see this morning, there's more going on than what we see on the surface. The war on earth really is a reflection of the war in heaven. And the underlying issue is the fallen state of man and spiritual warfare. So, as we've gone through Daniel over the last few weeks, we've discovered what? that there's more still to come for this world. And there are a number of ways to understand the prophetic, but what follows is at least a problematical approach. 
So Daniel first saw the ten-nation confederacy, which will rise out of the old Roman Empire, the feet of the Fitbigger and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The Antichrist comes out of that group. He'll sign a treaty with the nation of Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. This will appear to bring peace, and maybe for the first time in a long time, at least for three and a half years, there might be some peace. Maybe, maybe not. At least for Israel, there appears to be. But of course, in the middle of the tribulation, he breaks the peace treaty, and all whatever breaks out loose, and we move into what's called the Great Tribulation, the second half. But behind the scenes, as I said, is where the real battle is going on, which is spiritual warfare. It's the battle, it really, even though it's already been won, it's the battle carried on by Satan in a desire to undermine God's program on his way out. His goal seems to be to create as much chaos and destruction before he's taken out as he can do. I assume, and I could be wrong, that he's already that he's aware he's already been defeated, but he isn't going to give up without making a mess. And the battle continues on into the tribulation where it becomes fully visible because Satan is directly involved through the Antichrist and the false prophet. But it's the battle that we fight, and I don't think we really are that aware of on a daily basis. In Ephesians 6.12 we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, it's during the tribulation that was seen from Daniel's prophecies, and also we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, that the world as a whole really comes under struggling and suffering. We've seen a lot lately, and locally, or so much so that I suspect every one of us knows people that have been affected by what we've seen. But that's nothing compared to what's coming. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, 22, if these days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And by the way, the elect there means the people who come to believe during the tribulation period. That has nothing to do with the elect that are in the church. It does have to do with the elect out of Israel that are being saved during that period as well. So the Antichrist is going to be defeated. Messiah will come to establish his kingdom. And they'll bring a true peace to the world for time and eternity, but even there it's only peace for a thousand years, which is broken for five minutes, and then it goes on forever. But as we've seen, nothing is said about where the church fits into all of this, and that's because the church is raptured out. Remember what we started back in our prophecy series, the, the rules to remember are that all of these prophecies has to do with Israel and the Gentile nations has nothing to do with the church. The purpose of the tribulation is to refine Israel and bring it to the point where those who remain are restored to a relationship with God and to bring judgment on the Gentiles and so it's got nothing to do with the church. But, and this will keep re-emphasizing, but what is our call? 
it's to love God, love others, and go and make disciples during whatever time we have left, because the Lord may take us individually, well, he will at some point, uh, or because he comes from the church, so we're supposed to be busy for him. I mentioned before my mom was uh, 93 when she died for the last couple of years. Like a lot of people are living in age, why hasn't the Lord taken me home yet? And I don't know, but as long as you've got something to do. And she was praying for people. She was witnessing to one of my family members who no, would not hear it from anybody but her. The Lord gave her something to do, and when that was done, when he had decided that was done, then he took her to be home. And as long as your brain's working, you can be doing something for the Lord. Well, that lets a lot of people... Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, regardless of what one's eschatological view is, we know what we're called to do. And Matthew 24, 36 to 42, we read, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And the idea with staying awake is staying awake and being busy for him. So we talk about these things because it reassures us that God is a promise-keeping God and we are secure in him, but not because we're overly concerned about the prophetic events themselves, because there's only one thing left until Christ returns that's relevant to us, and that is that we get out of here. So it's to be a motivator on who he is, and our security in him and our trust in him is to motivate us to be busy for him. And every one of us has opportunities. Every one of us comes in contact with people we can share with. And if we are willing to be open to what the Lord would have us mm -hmm. say to them, so, as we move into chapter 10, we want to keep in mind that this chapter serves as a prologue to the rest of the book. It's really one extended vision that we're seeing in the last, these last three chapters. And it also gives us a glimpse into what's going on even right now. Adam Kuyper wrote, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose our spiritual vision, a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there, that's where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. And that's the thing that we need to remember. And it, really, if you remember this, then everything, all the chaos that's going around actually makes some sense, doesn't it? If the real battle is spiritual warfare, if Satan and his followers are active and seemingly becoming more active in a way, that would explain why the world is so chaotic because it's just a reflection of that supernatural chaos that we're not observing that we're not aware of directly. And again, growing up in Western civilization, where we are much more sophisticated and educated and jammed into mater the materialistic world so much so that we don't seem to have much connection with the supernatural, right? We forget these things. 
them, you know, we're advanced enough that now our horoscopes are printed by computer. So, <laughs> so you know they've got to be accurate, right? And so it's not entirely our fault, but we've lost a connection, really, in a sense, other than theoretical, to the fact that there is a supernatural world out there. And so when somebody says, uh, you know, I was talking to God, and we look at them carefully to make sure they're not schizophrenic, and to see what they mean by that, because it makes us itch. But that's where the real battle is going on. And if we're not aware of that, then a lot of this craziness doesn't make sense. But we see chaos all over the world today, don't we? That's a squirrel running past my driveway, that's what makes that noise. <laughs> so the first message is of, this, of chapter 10 is, we are in the midst of a spiritual war. I will admit, this is probably one of the odder chapters of scripture that we really, and has been one of the ones that's been really misused by people to come up with all sorts of bizarre theories about demonology. But we get so caught up in the mundane that we forget what the real battle is. Secondly, and this is even more important, so we don't freak out about the first statement, is as believers, the battle has already been won. Okay. Satan has been defeated. The mess he's making are just death rows. He's read too much Shakespeare and he's taken forever to die. Uh, and so the war has been won, but the battles are still going on. Christ has had victory over him and he can have no victory over us, but that which we allow or for his own purposes God may choose to allow, which we see in scripture. But he's already lost. Oh, and... I should parenthetically note, whenever I talk about Satan, I'm really talking about his whole kingdom, not him personally, because I don't think any of us are important enough to get his personal attention. And he's a limited being, because he is a being, right? So we just use Satan and his kingdom synonymously always, just for simplicity's sake. Say, we have all the tools we need available to us to fight the battle because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. For those who say, well, Christians can be demon-possessed. No, they can't. You can't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and a demon indwelling you simultaneously. And third, part of this is our role is to be a prayer warrior. We are to be in prayer for our leaders, for our church leadership. All of if there's ever a time where it's obvious there are people we need to be praying for, and it's always been true, but it's obvious today because it's that communication with God is what we need. By the way, that does mean we need to listen, not just talk. But even Daniel can become fearful. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word, had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. 
On the 21st day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt in fine gold from Afaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this grand vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of the words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So, Daniel has a vision. He's again moved forward in time. This vision occurs while he's now serving the Media Persia Empire. The first part of that prophetic vision has already come to pass. Babylon has fallen, and the Media Persian Empire has arisen, and he's, as we saw in the early part of the book, arisen into a position of authority and power during that period. And so this is, serves as part of the vision recorded over the last three chapters. It's an account of how the vision came to Daniel, and the last chapter is a postscript to the vision recorded in 11. So in chapter 10, we have the introduction. In chapter 11, the vision, and then chapter 12 wraps up the whole thing. So Daniel, for whatever reason, and we don't entirely know, had modified his diet. He was in fasting and mourning. We don't know what, what he was grieving about at this point. It's not relevant. It might be cumulative over all the messages, he'd, visions he'd been getting over the last years. That may have been his general state of concern for Israel. Remember in the last vision with Gabriel, it was an answer to his wanting to know when Israel was going to be free. And so it may be that. It may have been that he was concerned for this continued general suffering in the diaspora. It may be that he was concerned for the Jews who may have already returned to the area of Jerusalem. We read in 2 Chronicles 36.23 and in Nehemiah 4.7-8, through 8, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house of Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Amalites and the Ashtolites had heard of the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So it may be that he's concerned for those who have already returned and started the rebuilding of the process, and as you know if you read Nehemiah, there was a lot of hostility going on. Gee, that sounds familiar. Just like what's going on today, huh? You want to talk about the Old Testament being practical. Hmm. Might as well be reading it in the newspaper in the other hand. We don't know. But certainly he's anxious about something. And so he's going for prayer and fasting, really. So after this four weeks of modified fasting, after the season of Passover, a vision comes to Daniel 
in the appearance of a man. Now, who is this being? Now, some, yes? I would say it's the pre-incarnate uh, Christ. Well, and actually, that's a position that some hold. And while the description is similar to the one in Revelation 1, it doesn't seem likely. Because the reason, and we'll see it in a little bit further down, is this individual couldn't come to Daniel until the archangel Michael intervenes because he's being kept away from him by demonic forces, which would let Christ out of the picture. So whoever this being is, he's not going to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Now some see verses 5 and 6 as Christ, and then another being in 10, but I think it's the same individual throughout the whole section. So he's one of the hosts of heaven, an angel who's been given the responsibility of bringing God's word, another one in response to another one of Daniel's prayers. Boy, when Daniel prays, yeah. he gets direct people coming down from heaven to tell him what's going on. Man, I'm not sure. I'm just as happy God doesn't answer my prayers that way. That would be a little... I don't think so. Thank you. You wouldn't have to. He gets g bills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, God. Uh, I admit, this whole thing comes across as very strange. What's going on with Daniel seems kind of unique in Scripture. And we have a little hard to wrap our brains around because, as we'll see, what happens is he was held up from coming because of this spiritual warfare that we're talking about. So, he is a powerful being, he's a heavenly being, he wears priestly garments, his rank is shown by the golden girdle and the golden ornamentation of his garments. The physical description of the individual is he appears of stone and crystal, brilliant features and arms and legs of burnished bronze, makes you think he's obviously more than human. So this is clearly one of the angelic beings that serves in the courts of heaven. God uses angels specifically with those things that seem to relate to Israel. But we'll see there's more than that going on, and this is why these, this passage becomes very odd and is misused so often. See, the delusion of the contemporary church is it's, the supernatural is no big deal. And to feel that way means that they've never been touched by God's presence. Because... If God makes you aware of his presence in some way, it's impactful. I don't tell this story too often, but people already think I'm weird, so. Back in the day, and as most of you know, I was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam era. And I had gotten turned down on my initial application. I was one of the few right-wing conservatives in San Francisco applying, so the San Francisco board didn't probably believe me. And so, but when I was going in to speak to them the first time, needless to say, I was praying like crazy because I wasn't ready to run to Canada. And I literally felt God's hand on my shoulder. It was, you know, one of the few times I can testify to that. And it was interesting. We don't connect up much. I suspect every one of you, not necessarily that, but can testify to a time when God was very real to you and it wasn't something that was just nonchalant. And for those who basically 
deny the supernatural or just try to create it for themselves, that says to me they've really never connected up with God in that sense. Because here's Daniel's a prophet, right? He's had a lot of visions. He's talked to a lot of angels over the years. And in this section, we get a view, one of the very few glimpses in Scripture of the supernatural battle that's going on around us. Remember, God cast Satan and a third of the angels who followed him out and are going to cast them into the eternal pit eventually. Am I getting myself? We read this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 9 to 10. Where we read, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever. Eventually he's going to be judged, and his followers are going to be judged. And notice, sorry Milton, he isn't ruling in hell, he's being judged in hell, just like everyone else, only more so. But what's Daniel? Daniel sees this vision, and notice this vision is not just going on in his head because the men around him, while they couldn't see this man, they were somehow aware of a godly presence because it made them so uncomfortable they all fled the scene. That meant somehow or other this being was manifest, at least the presence of his power was felt by everybody that was there, not just Daniel. But it was so draining emotionally, John, when he sees the risen Christ, that he collapses, exhausted, and falls on his face. And so the messenger speaks. And like the previous one, he is encouraged about his unique place. And we don't see this very often in Scripture either. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So God uniquely is blessing Daniel. These beings come to him and say, God has sent us directly to you because you're uniquely called. I don't know why Daniel is uniquely chosen, why Daniel was really allowed to rise to such a level. But Daniel is a committed individual. He's committed to God in the midst of a pagan world. And that's the example he's continually served to us. I don't care what our situation is. In the middle of a pagan world of unbelievers, wherever you work, whoever you come in contact with, we are called to live for God in that world, and Daniel serves an example of how you can do that and still be appropriate within that world because he keeps rising up, right? He's not a John the Baptist who stands for it and immediately gets in jail for it. God wants him to stand up for God, and he does so in a way that everyone around him recognizes him as such. But at the same time, he does it in a manner that allows him to serve effectively in the governments he's called to serve in. I guess that means Christians can serve in political office if God puts them there and they remember to live for him there. Huh. And we can work with non-believers in a non-believing organization.
Because that's where God called us to be, right? And be conscientious about doing our job. Because that's what Daniel was doing. And for some reason, God has uniquely set him aside and sends him direct answers when he prays with angelic beings to give him information. But notice, and, and this is where it gets really strange. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision of for days yet to come. Huh? He was on his way, and one can assume because of all of this, his prayers were related to the media Persian Empire in some way. Okay. But this angel was prevented from coming from a demon who had responsibility, who was over the media Persian Empire, it appears. Because who is Michael? Michael is the archangel. This guy was lower rank, right? And so Michael comes and intervenes so that this messenger can come to Daniel. And this guy was hanging around 21 days before Michael shows up to get him through. Huh? This is where if you take it to its extreme, which people do, you get this concept of territorial demons and you pray for protection and hedges around demons over territories. Yet, this does seem to say in some way that Satan has agents that are specifically responsible for specific geographic areas, doesn't it? I'm going to get dogmatic about it. We don't think so. But isn't that what seems to be going on here? It's very odd. Because it's only when Michael arrives and ends whatever this is going on for 21 days that this angelic messenger from God, because that's what we're told, right? He was sent from God, is able to come to Daniel. So I will grant you this is one of the more difficult passages. Fortunately, it doesn't affect basic doctrines or what we're called to do, but it is one of the odder passages. Michael Rydenick says, the angel strengthened and informed Daniel that God had heard him from the first day of the three weeks of prayer and then immediately sent the angel to answer him. Some interpreters have identified the angel as Gabriel, an unlikely conclusion, since the text does not identify him as such. The angel had only arrived 21 days later because the prince of the kingdom of Persia would stood him. The Persian prince had to be a supernatural to oppose this angel and evil to oppose God's purposes. Therefore, he was a demonic spirit seeking to influence Persia's political affairs and oppose God's purposes. Other biblical passages also teach of unseen spiritual forces influencing the principalities and world powers. And I'll just, Ezekiel 28, 11-19, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4 and Ephesians 6 12. The angel was able to prepare over the demon associated with Persia only when the archangel Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. Michael, whose name means who is like God, is a guardian angel of Israel and designated an archangel in the New Testament, Joel 9. 
That does seem to be what's going on. And by the way, that makes sense, doesn't it? That there would be demonic forces against certain political powers. We saw this, I would argue, in World War II with the efforts to totally destroy the Jewish people. I think we see it in other nations that are out there trying to slaughter Christians wholesale. We know that's just not the norm, that that is demonic. It is satanic. To what degree, I don't know, but what we're being told here is there are spiritual battles going on. And I think that we can see clearly here. Again, it gets back to what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4. Yes, go ahead. I, just out of curiosity, I hear that phrase, that hedge of protection. Where did that come from? Is that biblical or did somebody make that up at some point? It's part of this mentality that let's name demons and cast out demons and, and turning spiritual warfare into something that it's not biblical, yes. Okay. A hedge of protection, originally was a wall growing out of thorn bushes that you grew around your property so people couldn't get through it. Ah, yeah, it's a hedge, it's a gotcha. plants that are poking. Yeah, again, it comes out of this whole view of spiritual warfare that's not biblical. It's not really, but Job 1.10 says, haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? Yeah, that was the question that Satan asked, and God says, eh, not really, go ahead, Adam. God provides protection, but that spiritual warfare, which I'll talk about again in a minute, but again, the idea here is that Frank Peretti and others in contemporary times have come up with this bizarre concept of spiritual warfare that's not grounded. God can, and God does, God allows Satan, we see this in Job, we see this elsewhere, where God allows and does provide spiritual protection. That's what Christ prayed for us when he says to protect us, he's talking about to protect us spiritually. But we have to depend on him. So again, we go back to that Satan's already lost the battle. But how do we fight spiritual warfare? Hold on, I'll get to that in a minute. All right. But again, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, Paul wants us to remember this. We do need to take it seriously. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. It says that we're going to bring down Satan and his demons over this country or that country. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about we are to pray for protection. We are to fight the battle because where is Satan attacking? The church, believers, yes, he's using nations, but what is his goal? It's to defeat God's plan. Maybe he can't make the final defeat, but what's his goal for us? Keep us defeated and ineffectual. That's his goal for Christians, right? His goal for non-believers is primarily focused on them not getting saved. And he wants to bring down Israel because in that way he can defeat God, right? So, it is a spiritual battle. Longman states, who is this prince of the Persian kingdom? These verses give a hint of the cosmic battle that parallels the earthly struggle of God's people. The prince of the Persian kingdom is a supernatural being who fights on behalf of the human kingdom. The Old Testament notes of such spiritual entities and events in other books besides Daniel, perhaps most notably in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided a mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. 
The Bible here, we would argue, refers to God's angelic creatures who make up his heavenly councils the sons of God. These are the angels, in other words, assigned to top different nation states, such as might be implied the warning found in Deuteronomy 4.19. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord God has allotted to all peoples under the whole earth. Again, you can take this too far, but we know, if as you read Israel worshiping and the nations worshiping false gods, that some of those gods did have demonic powers. We know that. We don't want to underestimate this stuff. We don't want to overblow it either. Okay, but we don't want to underestimate the same connection between rebellious human power represented in the state and evil cosmic powers may be seen in Isaiah 24, 21 to 23. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in prison, and after many days, they will be punished. And the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem in his glory before the, his elders. We know, when you look in Revelation, that who's behind the governmental powers with the Antichrist and the false prophet? It's Satan. Those are demonic entities involved with political powers. We know that. Yeah, Ron. So verse 13 and 21, if we don't understand that, then we miss this entire passage. Uh, it looks to me. So I'm, so now I'm equating this to Revelation to make sure I understand it. Yeah. I've always been confused. So, so the, the prince is supernatural, the kingdom of Persia is natural. Is that, that what we're saying? Just like Revelation has the angel of the church. Right? Is that the same kind? You have the angel which is supernatural. It seems to be that kind of a parallel, that we have demonic... And you know that with, with kingdoms, that Satan is involved with them. You know that God intervenes. So it's... Let me long and finish this up by saying we must be careful not to speculate on the hints the Bible gives us, but that there are supernatural powers, good and bad, behind various human institutions is the truth taught in the Old Testament. We know that. Okay. We don't want to get hung up on it, but we have to talk about it because this is one of the most clearly clouded <laughs> passages in the Old Testament. And... For me, the focus just needs to be, we need to constantly come back to, there is spiritual warfare going on, and it impacts governments, and it impacts what's going on in this world today. But God is in control, God has had victory, and nothing can be accomplished unless he allows it, causes it, or in the end, judges it. That's what we have to keep focusing on. God is sovereign, God is in control, and while there is spiritual warfare going on, the end of it has already been resolved. Okay? And don't ask me too deep theological questions here because I don't know either. All I know is that those who take these things and turn them into really spooky novels, which can be entertaining, can lead to an end result of people being fearful in ways that as believers we do not need to be fearful. And that's the important point. Right? And I'll reiterate his last statement because I think that's the most important one. We must be careful not to speculate. And especially in these areas. So, page 
picking up at verse 15 and going on into the, into the first verse of the next chapter. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and then I opened my mouth and I spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servants talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me, and I was strengthened, and he said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will turn to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. The message that Daniel's getting here is regarding the future of the Jewish people. Daniel's overwhelmed. He isn't able to talk. The angel strengthens him, encourages him. Now, what this seems to be saying is this angel remains to strengthen or to keep the Persian media empire strong until what? The angel of Greece shows up. In other words, somehow these are involved and God's involved with the collapse of the media Persian empire and the rise of Greece under Alexander. And so this is going on behind the scenes. And it says he and Michael stand by Darius because Darius is carrying out God's will in, in certain ways to strengthen him. But the real purpose of his coming to Daniel is to give Daniel the information that we're going to find in the next chapter. <sighs> this is a chapter it would have been nice to ignore completely, wouldn't it? <laughs> and this is again showing us, we said, right, that God is in control of all nations. He allows and puts into power or removes from power those who are in positions of authority. And it appears, and maybe it's because it's tied to Israel, that, that spiritual warfare is going on at the very top levels over these nations. Certainly in these specific nations, at this specific time, that's the case. Whether I'm going to read it into that, what's still going on in the world today, I don't know. Certainly it is during the tribulation period. And maybe it is in the Middle East as it relates to the Jewish people. I don't know. But that's what was going here as it relates to Media Persia and the fall of Media Persia and the rise of Greece. And we talked about it before. We know when Alexander comes to the gates of Jerusalem to take Jerusalem, the high priest and the other priests come out and show him these sections in Daniel where he sees himself correctly and so he goes away and doesn't take the city. So he understood it as relating to him and relating to these political issues. Moving on. <laughs> now I remember why I don't like doing Daniel. <laughs> but it is important to remember that we're not just fighting the circumstances of life, even us individually. 
that our battles do take place in the spiritual realm. And one of our primary weapons is prayer. Notice where is Daniel every time these visions come to him? He's praying and looking to God for answers, and God sends him answers, right? That's where it starts in each of these chapters. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So prayer is vital. And, as we can see with what's going on here, it's not only the prayers of the individual that are important in this warfare, but the prayers of the corporate body as well. We are to be a praying church. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We see this from the very beginning. Daniel is a praying man. Remember we said he's an example of what it is to be faithful to God in a pagan society, and what's the first thing we see about him, along with him standing for the Lord, it's him praying to the Lord. That's how he's able to be who he is. He went to the lion's den because he was a praying man. And prayers include recognition of who God is and praise and worship. And we worship God because we realize just how far short we fall and that he loves us and is there for us in spite of that. First John 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Prayer also includes intercession for one another. We've been doing a lot of that lately, haven't we? the prayer lists that go out for people in the church, but we've been praying for all of those in Santa Rosa and other areas. And that's why we praise the body for individuals. That's why the prayer lists go out to everybody. And when we pray, we pray that, that it is a spiritual battle because when people are suffering and when they're ill and when they're beaten down or when they've lost everything, that's when they're most vulnerable to spiritual attack, isn't it? That's when we're most at risk to whatever our own personal weaknesses are. And so we lift each other up. And the body. And we can claim victory in Christ. And should. Because he's already won. And pray for the protection that comes from his resources. Ephesians 6.18 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Using one of the words I tell couples never to use. All. <laughs> I always tell them, don't use all. And never use never. Oh, but here we're to pray for all the saints. And all perseverance. And all supplication. See, that's the most difficult part of this, I think, is we've grown up in a pragmatic world, haven't we? very physical kind of a world. The thought of angels battling in the heavenlies is really pretty unreal. And granted, some of those books made it real, more real, but not necessarily in a constructive way or biblically sound. And we don't want it to become more real, by the way, because that's a little unsettling, isn't it? <laughs> Keep it pretty physical. Nevertheless, what we see here is real, and we've got to depend on the Holy Spirit 
to keep us aware of what the battle is and how we're to fight it. But our confidence is in the Lord. The victory has been won. Satan has been defeated. And we can depend on that victory. We have no reason to fear the outcome. We've read the end of the book. We skipped through it and read the last few pages. We know how it comes out. We may not know all the details in the middle, but we know how it comes out. And that's when we do fight the battle. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. You're all familiar with this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That would seem to make it pretty clear what the battle is, huh? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given to the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The whole armor of God is nothing more than living as God has called us to live, being in the word, being prepared to give out the gospel, being committed to prayer, trusting in Christ's righteousness. It's not some kind of unique thing where you're binding demons and getting their names so you can cast them out and all this bizarre kind of stuff. It's living the Christian life as God has called us to live it. That's how we fight the spiritual battle. But Paul is making it clear there is one. But how we fight it is being who God's called us to be. That's why every one of us can fight it, because it's nothing exotic, it's nothing fantastical, it's simply living the Christian life in dependency on the Holy Spirit and in prayer with the Father and being in the Word. But we have enough trouble with that. We don't need anything more exotic. Right? <laughs> That's like I tell parents, it's easy to raise kids. They ask, am I loved and can I get away with it? And the answer is yes and no, and that's all it is to parenting, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if it was only that simple. So here's the whole answer to Daniel and everything else that we have to deal with. Because notice God's fighting the battle on the national levels. If there's spiritual warfare going on there, if there's a demon over Russia, I don't know, you know, or over the White House, some would argue, whatever. <laughs> Or has been. I don't know. But that's God fighting that one, right? Except we're to pray for our leaders, aren't we? But for ourselves, we too are fighting spiritual warfare. But it's on a much more mundane level. Because what does Satan do? Satan takes the good things in our lives and causes them to become our idols. Or Satan takes the negative things in our lives and causes us to give up. And how do we avoid that? Well, doing what Paul says, putting on the whole armor of God and living as Christians. They're supposed to live. It's that simple. And then that's simple, but it's that simple. 
And what's the example that Daniel serves? It serves as an example of power to live in a world that's ugly and becoming uglier by the minute. And the number one tool he uses is prayer. And by the way, being in order, right? Because the last chapter he's reading the book of Jeremiah. Praying and being in the word. Nothing new under the sun for God's people. It's just a matter of doing it. So while we are engaged in a great battle, we're on the side that's already won. Yay, team. And so if we live as mature believers or maturing believers, we're fighting with the warfare. Romans 8, 37 to 39. Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, which then I would add parenthetically, which includes ourselves, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing at all, period, absolute, end of the discussion, can separate us from God. We can break fellowship with him with our sin, but even we can't separate ourselves from God. Which, by the way, is the answer to all those who think they can lose their salvation. Because of all those things out there, and the statement, nor anything else in all creation, which does include us, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We are totally, completely, absolutely secure. Please God. No matter how crazy the world is around us. And it's that comfort and that confidence, not in ourselves but in Him, that we can offer to others who are in chaos because the world is chaotic and are fearful. And boy, are we dealing with a lot of fear. And all this anger that's going on with people and destruction is an ultimate example of ultimate fear because people are angry and crazy when they're terrified. <clears throat> So for us, we need to fight the battle by being a praying body. We need to pray for each other and for the individuals that the Lord puts us in touch with outside of the body. We need to pray that the Lord will provide the resources we need to continue to serve Him. But He doesn't call us to do anything that He doesn't provide what we need to do it. But we also need to rejoice in the Lord that we can always go to Him like Daniel in prayer. Amen.